0: You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Bible for Normal People. Our guest today is Jonathan Merritt, and we're going to be talking about reimagining sacred speech. Uh, Jonathan Merritt is well known to a lot of us, I'm sure he is a very prolific religion and culture writer. He's won all sorts of awards. He's published probably thousands of articles in places like USA Today and BuzzFeed, Washington Post, New York Times. So, he's been around. He's a real thinker who lives in New York City and is thinking a lot about religion and culture and how to move forward.
1: Yeah. And if you've actually, uh, I'm going to just promote the book here that he wrote, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. We talk about some of that in this episode since we were talking about reimagining sacred speech and he's a researcher and I appreciate that in a lot of what he talks about. You know, you can tell he's... He's read a ton. Yeah, absolutely. And he's done research and has specific statistics and anecdotes and all kinds of things that really... I think, help his point come alive. And he drives his point home in a good way, which is that language changes, and in America, spiritual language religious language is dying. A part of it is because we've gotten into this habit of calcifying or fossilizing language and thinking that it has this fixed meaning and being afraid of transforming it, reimagining it.
0: It's almost uh, like we're fooled into thinking this is part of the problem with like a literary or bookish culture. You have these words in front of you in black and white and you think, well, these things are like permanent. But we all know that language changes. We know that instinctively. We all know that, you know, we can't understand idioms today that were spoken in our own country 50 years ago or 100 years ago. The meanings of words change, how we use them changes. And one thing that I really liked about what we talked about with Jonathan is that within the Bible, you're seeing that as well. Because the Bible is across a pretty broad spectrum of time and place, and you have words that really change their meaning. And his book talks a lot more about it than we did here. But I just think that's fascinating.
1: Yeah, and it's another example of. You know, I think, Pete, you do a good job of this in in your books, but also here on the podcast, we talk about not just what the Bible is, what it says, the words that it's using, but also how does it function? What is the Bible doing? And I think it's more and more, I'm convinced, I'm much more interested in following the example of what the Bible does, maybe just as much or maybe even more than what the Bible says. And so, what it does, we see this evolution of language and development of language, how it has to be updated in every generation. And it excites me and compels me to want to follow that example, follow that lead, to bring God talk and that sacred speech into the 21st century. And what does that look like, and how can we do it in a compelling and creative way? And it feels very, very liberating to see that the Bible, it it seems, gives us permission.
0: Yeah, God talk doesn't get off the hook, so to speak. It it also, it's not that it has to evolve, is that it does evolve or it dies. You know, it's, it's sort of not like we have to do something. It's like, it's been changing. And right now, it's just sort of dying what the words mean. And, you know, we're relying on things that people just, they don't communicate this way today. So, what? how do you talk about God without simply just collapsing into what Jonathan calls these fossilized terms that simply aren't meaningful to people and it's not well these people need to get their act together. That's sort of Christendom talking. You know, we should expect people to be on board with this tribal language that we use, but that's just not the case. So I found it really refreshing and especially, you know, the parts about how the Bible itself is already sort of modeling that for us. I think that's a good insight.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well let's get into this conversation with Jonathan Merritt. Let's do it
2: every language either changes or it dies. There are 0.00 exceptions to that rule. And so if your approach to the vocabulary of faith is to hold that thing so tightly that you will not allow language to be language, which is to say, allow it to change in our midst, to change as we change, to mature as we mature, then that language will eventually cease to exist.
1: Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief,
0: boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and She said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused and it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normal people. That's one word, it's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com, promo code normal people.
3: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com.
1: All right. Well, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you, Jonathan.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me on. It's my pleasure.
1: Well, we like to start with getting to know our guests a little bit. So, if you could just give us a little brief, maybe three to five minute spiritual bio here. Bring us up to speed on a little bit of your story.
0: Oh, gosh. Which culminates in this podcast, of course.
1: Yeah. I, yeah. Make sure you end with being on this
0: podcast yeah, that's, and that's make sure the that's the, the
1: crescendo.
2: This is the, the high
0: point. The it's eschaton. All- this is the end. Okay.
2: I grew up in uh, a Southern Baptist household. My dad was a, a Southern Baptist pastor, a, a TV preacher, president of the Southern Baptist Convention for. A couple of years when I was growing up. So, I grew up very much conservative, evangelical. I often say like I grew up in the inner sanctum of evangelicalism because, you know, Jerry Falwell was a, a family friend of ours and we were just sort of in that whole kind of religious right world. And I went to Liberty University, as did you, <laughs> Jared. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. not Pete.
1: I, think, I don't think liberty existed, Pete, when you went to college.
2: Right?
1: <laughs> okay, anyway, go ahead.
2: <laughs> See this, we got the, we've got the comedy, we've got the scholarship, all things. But I started in seminary having sort of a, a transformative religious experience and really began to kind of read the Bible as if for the first time. And for me, it, I, felt, I felt like so much of what I'd grown up with was not exactly what I was finding in the tradition, in, in the sacred texts. It just didn't make sense to me. And so a number of years ago, I sort of granted myself permission to start over a little bit and to kind of rediscover the Christian tradition for myself. And, you know, I don't know where that really leads me. I, I did an interview recently with Ed Stetzer and he was like, so you're a liberal Protestant. And I was like, yeah, I, I guess so. But I, I, I feel like my trajectory in the last five seven years has not been uh, along a continuum from right to left, but from closed to open. And so, maybe I would describe myself these days as a bit more of a, maybe a Christian mystic.
0: Yeah. That's a great way to look at it. It's, it's from, from closed to open. I think that's fantastic. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you usually, we think of these sort of these real binaries, and that doesn't always help. But maybe that's what he means, if you're open, you're liberal. I'm not trying to be snarky there. It's just that I think, you know, the, when you're open, it's like, well, that's the problem. Yeah.
2: yeah, I think there's a lot of that where, you know, and, and the downfall of liberals oftentimes is that they get stuck in in deconstruction. In the same way, I think the downfall of a lot of conservatives is they get stuck in construction. And you have to have a closed system to kind of keep the institution moving, keep all of the frameworks as they are. And that's just not I just don't really have a stake in that game anymore.
0: Okay, well, listen, we're, we're going to talk about reimagining sacred speech. And let's start with this. Help us understand why why should we do that? Say, say well, If it was good enough for Jesus and Paul, why isn't it good enough for us? Why are we reimagining sacred speech?
2: Well... In part because, well, one of my favorite theological books is a book called Jesus Through the Centuries, written by a guy named Yaroslav Pelikan. And in it, he has a quote from Albert Schweitzer, where he says that every generation has found itself in the position where it has had to rediscover Jesus for itself to answer the question, who do you say I am? in a way that's unique to that generation. And as Schweitzer says, and I think it's true, that's the that's the only way Jesus lives in the here and now. And the the only way that we really or one of the only ways that we can communicate about God is through language, also image, and then incarnation, you know, acts where we image we image the divine or talk about God. And so, it's one of the most important ways that we talk about God, and and every generation has to do it in a fresh way. I think when you look at Christian history, this is the way that the Christian faith has survived. (laughs) But what's interesting, I think, is when you get to kind of this post-Enlightenment Western Christianity, that notion of rediscovering God and and to, to speak of God in fresh ways makes people a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, why is that? Uh, I think that, you know, I've talk, i I've talked about often that when a, a language is dying, one of the ways you people will tend to react to that, the ailing language, is through fossilization. I think the reason that they fossilize words to say, to sort of circle the wagons and say the way that we have understood this, the way that we've talked about this is the way it should be understood, the way it should be talked about, don't mess with my words. That way is the easiest way. It takes the least amount of brain power, the least amount of time, if you just sort of lock everything in place. So, you know, if you were to go into a new Calvinist church, let's say, and you were to join a Sunday school class and you said, hey, you know, I think that the way that we talk about salvation or the way that we talk about sovereignty is not exactly right. Maybe we should reimagine that you're not going to be around that church very long. Like they're going to, they're going to show you the door because their, their approach is fossilization. And in, in that approach, faith is very easy. You say, okay, here are all of our beliefs and they can be sort of written on index cards And then the the role of the church then is is simple. It's to become kind of a spiritual boot camp where you just sort of train people to memorize all of these index cards and then teach them tactics for arguing those positions, those ideas, the meanings that they've ascribed to words. And then you send them out to argue with other people that other people are wrong, we are right, and they should change their minds and think like us, and then come back to church so that we can train them to do the same thing. That's that's really easy. And so, yeah. I think that, that a lot of people choose that because it's the road of least resistance.
0: It's a way to, I imagine from their point of view, it's a way to ensure the survival of the faith. But it seems like it might lead in the exact opposite direction.
2: Well, it does. You know, when you look at linguistics, one thing that every, you know, linguists are like theologians, they don't agree on a a whole lot, but they do agree on one thing, which is every language either changes or it dies. There are 0.00 exceptions to that rule. Every language changes or dies. And so, if your approach to any language, including the vocabulary of faith, is to hold that thing so tightly that you will not allow language to be language, which is to say, allow it to change in our midst, to change as we change, to mature as we mature. Then that language will eventually cease to exist.
1: Well, I want to bring maybe the Bible in into this conversation. You know,
0: so why ruin a good discussion, Jared? With
1: I'm the Bible? I'm sorry. I'm always the fun sponge. All here. Right, if you must go. But, ahead you know, Pete mentioned earlier, if it's good enough for Jesus, if it's good enough for Paul, I think a lot of people are basically saying, well, we're just repeating what the Bible says, but as we've done on this podcast again and again, we think it's just as important to do what the Bible does, not just what it says. So, how how do you think this idea of reimagining sacred speech, are there examples of this in the Bible that we can point out and say, hey, we're just following the example of what the Bible's doing and whenever we say every generation has to reimagine, as Schweitzer would say, we would say that's even happening in the Bible. Would you agree with that?
2: Yes. I mean, when someone says to me, well, we should just talk about God the way that Jesus and Paul talk about God, my response is, exactly. You have an imaginative approach to language that is sort of unfolding before your eyes in the text. You know, th- these, are, these are people who are using language more than 1600 years before the advent of dictionaries. They were far more comfortable playing with language. Of course, you have the tradition of Midrash, which uh, I know Pete has written about and talked about. But a great example of this, and it's one that I've, I've talked about often, is the example of sin. There are at least three, and Gary Anderson in Sin of History has written about this extensively. Uh, It's not a controversial book among evangelicals. I think it won the Christianity Today Book of the Year when it came out. But he talks about in that book that there are at least three conceptions of sin that we find in the Bible. The first, the earliest conception that we find in the Hebrew scriptures is sin as a stain. So, it kind of gets on us and we have to wash it off, but eventually it comes back. By the time you have kind of early temple Judaism, you have sin as a weight. And of course, people will remember the temple rituals. You know, every year the high priest would come around. And it was a, it, this this understanding of sin by the way was communal. It was not individualistic. It wasn't like Oprah and you get a high priest and you get a high priest and or you get a Yom Kippur and you get a it's like, no, 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 we have one day of atonement. We have one high priest who represents all of us. And there's the weight of sin is sort of pressing down on us our communal misgivings. And so we bring the scapegoat Forward, And we lay, the high priest lays his hands on the scapegoat to symbolize the passing of the weight onto the shoulders of the scapegoat. And then they chase it out of town. And of course, that's uh, sin is being sort of chased out, uh, the weight of sin on that scapegoat. But, you know, it lowers again, and we have to come back and do it next year. So, It's not something that you kind of permanently get rid of. But the world had changed after in kind of this intertestamental period. You had the rise of the Roman Empire, for example. Early financial markets had emerged. And so, for example, you have Paul reimagining sin as a, a debt, as if there's this cosmic bank account, and we're sort of every time that we contribute to that chasm between the is and the ought, every time that we sin, we take out of that cosmic bank account. So, Paul's able to say, the wages of sin is death. If you had put Paul in a time machine and sent him back, the high priest wouldn't have a clue what Paul's talking about. Uh, Jesus actually uh, imagines it in reverse. Jesus says, okay, yeah, if there's this like cosmic bank account for each of us and we're debiting out of it, then can't we deposit into it? So, Jesus is able to say, for example, store up for yourself treasures that will not decay but will shine in the age to come. This is very new, imaginative way of talking about sin. And and it and it was sort of the dominant way of talking about sin until the Protestant Reformation. It sort of metastasized, right? You get you get indulgences where we where we take that that one way of talking about sin and make it quite literal. And the Protestant Reformation really shatters rhetoric in a number of ways, but when you look at sin now, we talk about sin in a number of ways. If you walk into a church and uh, the pastor, the evangelical pastor says, you have a sin problem. Well, he already is engaging in the reimagining of sacred speech. Problem solution language is not like first century Greco-Roman language. Like you're not going to find this kind of like you have a sin problem and you need a savior solution. That's a reimagining. That's a new way of talking about sin. It's quite modern even if people say you're sin sick outside of one verse that I can think of where Jesus says, you know, I've come for the sick, not for the well, I don't need a doctor, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus is not really using clinical language. The new Testament's not really using a lot of clinical language to talk about sin, but you walk into a lot of places today and they do. And so when you look at uh, language in the text, you will often find it doing the same thing that sin does, which is it is transforming right before our eyes. And I bet, I don't know, I, I bet Pete could give us a lot of examples of where this happened.
0: Well, I, I mean, I was going to ask, where do you think, I mean, since we're talking about sin, how how do, in your experience, how do Christians reimagine that concept today? I mean, I can think of a couple of examples from different fields, but I'm wondering, you know, what you might be thinking.
2: Here's what I would say. First off, Uh, I pull a lot from C.S. Lewis wrote a book that is, it's not in the Chronicles of Narnia because it's boring as hell, but uh, it's called (laughs) studies in words. It was published by the University of Cambridge Press, and it's an academic work on linguistics. And he says in there exactly what I'm saying to you. It's not, again, it's not a controversial idea, except among very conservative, white Western evangelicals. And he says in there, all language changes. All words have to change in meaning over time. That's just the way that language works. And he uses the metaphor of a tree, where there's kind of this trunk, which is the core idea that you're getting at right this core idea for sin might be that like things are not as they ought to be just sort of the core idea but then over time he says there has to be new branches sprouting on that trunk and that's how you know this thing is alive that it's working and so each of those things is the truth they're not the whole truth so help me god right they're all getting at something in other words if you talk about for example sin as sickness that is the truth I mean, how many people haven't woken up one day and just sort of realize that there are patterns, rhythms in their own life that are contributing to the world being not as it ought to be? It's almost like an illness that's just kind of come on them when they weren't looking. Well, that's getting at something that is true about this notion, sin. But if you universalize that, if that's the only, if you say, nope, that's it, that is the only way to talk about sin, that is what sin is. Well, it has all kinds of problems, right? For example, who's responsible if they get sick? Nobody. So, like, that metaphor begins to break down when you talk about, like, murder or racism. Because if it's just a sickness and you were just sort of infected with it, well, then you're not really responsible for it. But the same kind of idea happens if you talk about, for example, sin as lawlessness. Now we can start to get to talking about responsibility But if you universalize it, if you fossilize it, if that's the only way you talk about it, then faith becomes reduced to kind of like bean counting. You know, it's a list of to-dos and to-don'ts and that's sort of it. So, just like check the boxes and you're a good Christian. So, what I'm really arguing for is we need kind of a multiplicity of ways of talking about sacred ideas, And many of those things haven't even been imagined yet. You know, I've got a a great friend at, at Yale who talks about this, who's a professor of Hebrew scripture, and he says that if you look at kind of ancient Jews, they always believed there was the meaning of the word as it was first kind of spoken, and there's our meaning, but then there are all kinds of other meanings that we haven't even imagined yet, and all of those are right, true, and holy. And so to enter into that, to go back to a question you asked earlier, Pete, now that's messy. It's hard to do. It requires getting in community and engaging in the, the spiritual discipline of discernment. Well, that's a lot harder than just buying like a Lee Strobel book and memorizing all of the arguments.
0: Mm. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different.
1: There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path.
0: You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential online and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty
1: who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People.
0: It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. when using the code normal people at checkout, that's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code normal people at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code normal people. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Yeah, I guess what I'm hearing you saying, I mean, I, I resonate completely with, with what you're saying. It is simpler, though, to have simple meanings of words and they don't change. And the idea behind I think what what motivates people to hold on to that is God doesn't change. Mm-hmm. So if like we can't even get a simple thing like sin right, like if we can't really get our arms around that, it's like this whole system goes down the drain pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And what you're suggesting to state the obvious is it's more than just words. It's really what we think about how the Bible works you know, what God is like, all these things, I think, I just see them combined in all this, you know, and and words are the way of getting at some of these bigger questions that we have.
2: Yeah, and I like that you said getting at. You know, language is an act of approximation, not an act of precision. So, we're getting at something. We're not getting to the whole of something. Mm. And as soon as we think we figured something out, You know, a new generation arises that asks questions that we never even considered before and we go, oh, yeah, our understanding of that wasn't complete. And so, uh, this also requires a certain level of humility, theological humility, which is for a lot of folks these days an endangered species, you know, because uh, Helmut Thielke talked about this in a, A Little Lesson of Young Theologians, that Theology can be intoxicating, and so what can happen, and I think this is what has happened among a lot of conservative evangelicals, is it's calcified into this notion that, I, that they have to be right. And so if you don't have precision, how will I know that I'm right and you're wrong? Mm-hmm. And they need, there is a need among many Christians today, many kinds of Christians today, there's a need for someone else to be wrong in order for them to rest in their own rightness. And and the way that language works, again, not controversial, it is the way language works. I'm not making this up. It's <laughs> observable. It's the way it works. And there is no dispute on this among people who who But, study. you know,
0: think, Jonathan, of how people and I'm speaking from my own experience and others who went to relatively conservative seminaries the precision is everything especially when you're reading the new testament and especially when you're reading Paul because we can parse I mean everything you're looking for that precise meaning the use of prepositions and and you're you're seeking from that you're not watching Paul's let's say playfulness with language and Paul's r- reaching to communicate something like we all are when we speak and write, we're actually thinking of it as really like um, a divine code of some sort that is there waiting for us to unpack to get the one precise single meaning which once you get it will never change.
2: Right. It's almost like performing an autopsy. That's sort of what biblical exegesis is for a lot of people. You're standing over this dead thing that's locked into time, and you're dissecting it so that you can observe what's inside. But once you've seen it, you know what it is. So, it doesn't really require a lot else from you except to go out and tell people what you saw inside. That's a very different way of approaching the sacred text than what you find people in these kind of canonical periods. The way that they approach language and even sacred speech in their own texts.
1: Well, I I feel like, too, there's a sense in which, at least for me, when I participated in that autopsy-seeking, I was almost like running away from my own humanity. And you mentioned it, Jonathan, like, this is the way language works, And, and I think that's very frustrating for a lot of people. And I think of, in the 20th century, when philosophers were trying to, like, come to a very crisp and precise definition of truth, and what propositions, what do we mean when we say something is true, they that's where it was born A, a analytic philosophy had to, like, invent a whole new language, because they were like, well, we keep getting frustrated. If we use English, it's too ambiguous. Like, things are too imprecise, it's too slippery. So, they end up coming up with uh, an entirely new language that can kind of get rid of all those ambiguities of English. And so, I think our faith is built on the sense of certainty. We have a real problem with language in general, because I think we intuitively and, and observably understand that language is, isn't built for that kind of thing.
2: hmm And I've said one of the problems for many of us. You know, you have to think about the culture, the time in which we're having this conversation. That, I mean, that is almost always the key to the why behind the what. We're having these conversations as children of Merriam-Webster. We've all grown up. If you grew up in a house prior to the digital revolution, you probably grew up in a house that had a dictionary, or you grew up with a, a library that had a dictionary. If you wanted to know, quote, what a word means, you would go to the almighty dictionary and you would look it up. And that gave us this perception that, like, we know what words, quote, mean, because you just go to the dictionary and the dictionary tells you what they mean. Of course, a dictionary doesn't tell you what words mean. A dictionary tells you how words are used, but it has given us this this notion, right? That that's the way these things work. And so we want everything to be as simple as that, as simple as going to look up something in a dictionary. And I think that that language doesn't really conform to that way of interacting with it. And a lot of people, I think, I think another thing, by the way, that's contributed to this is that a lot of people who champion this kind of fossilized approach to language, they're still living in the shadow of like Mark Knoll's critique of their faith. You know, I, I'm sure a lot of your folks listening to this already know, but you remember when Mark Knoll wrote that book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, it had that famous opening line that the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not one. And there was a, a kind of social, uh, a pervasive embarrassment that happened, you know, 30 or more years ago with the when the anti-intellectualism of evangelicalism was, was unmasked for the first time. And so in order to not be embarrassed in that way, so many of these theologies, these ways of seeing the world, these frameworks were codified, they were locked into place, because at least, we, at least we're not going to get caught with our pants down having to speak that unholy phrase, I would call it holy, but unholy phrase, I don't know. So now evangelicals feel that they have to have an answer for everything so that they can kind of compete intellectually with the rest of the world. And I think that that is almost what's happening in the background when I have this conversation with people is they wanna be seen as intellectual, as respectable, as thoughtful, and they're afraid if they step into the messiness of the way that language works, that they will have to give up something with, with sort of making that decision.
1: We're going to pause for just one minute here on the podcast to remind you that if you'd like to support the work we do at The Bible for Normal People, just head to Patreon at patreon.com front slash The Bible for Normal People. There you'll find all sorts of ways to support us for as little as a dollar a month. One group we want to recognize from that group of supporters is our producers group. They get on calls with us, send us feedback, tell us all the ways that we're doing it wrong so that we can get better. So, thank you to Rob Buckingham, Chris Celeste, Chuck McKnight, Dennis Pender, Scott Goldman, Angela Smith, Ed McNamara, Carol Wimmer, Commodore Perry, and Heiko Eitzen. We couldn't do what we do without you. Now, back to the show. Well, can I go back to two words you used earlier? community and discernment, because I think a a fear is having to say, I don't know, but I think another fear is taking it too far, right? So, if there's a sense in which we're not just repeating what the Bible said and we, we have to sort of reimagine it, I feel like there's a sense that we're unmooring ourselves, we're pulling up the anchor and we're, we're going adrift. So, how, do you, how would you respond for someone who says, well, if we do that, how do we know if we're going too far with reimagining a language and no longer, it's no longer Christian or where's the boundary between that? And, and I think it might have something to do with what you talked about, community and discernment, but I wanted to hear more from you about that.
2: Yeah, I think, I think that, that, you know, that's, that's a, that is an ongoing question. Right, it's a it's not a problem you solve; it's a problem you manage. So, we are we're always sort of figuring this out in community. I think that where the real risk is for a, for a lot of evangelicals is that they know that this will require having to cede their personal infallibility to other people that they really don't want to listen to. In other words, like if you're going to figure this out in community. You're going to have to listen to women critique you. You're going to have to listen to people of color critique you. You're going to have to listen to poor and uneducated people critique you. That's kind of how you began to figure this this sort of thing out, right? You allowed the meanings of your words to bump up in, against other people. And and evangelicals are not really comfortable with that. They they m- many times they they really want everything defined by educated white men from America, and and that's that's just not the way that that this process works. It means getting involved in a in a diverse community and allowing these kind of cultural critiques to kind of um, brush up against the meanings of these words, so that we can understand uh, these where when these words are no longer working for us.
0: And you know, not only Jonathan looking to, you know, predominantly white men today, but also looking at a tradition that has been, you know, to say the least, dominated by white men. And this isn't white guilt talking here. This is just a fact. You know, this this is, and so what you're asking of people, well, not what you're asking, what this situation calls for is when you look forward, you're going to be taking some risks, right? And I don't know if, Risk is compatible with certain ways of thinking about the nature of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. You're just a troublemaker.
2: Uh, well, the, hello, Mr. Pot. Uh, <coughs> meet me. I'm, uh, I'm Mr. Kettle. Um, Good to meet you. Yes. Uh, no, but it, 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 we both are, are troublemakers to some degree. But you know what? It's that Orwell quote that in a time of great deception, it's a courageous act to tell the truth. I'm a troublemaker, I guess, but that's not, that's not my goal. I don't sit around and think, how can I like make trouble today? What I do do is I sit around and think about, you know, how can I communicate this truth in a way that will compassionately disabuse people of the lies that they've come to believe are actually the truth. And I think you do the same thing. The result of that is that people go, Oh, you're a troublemaker. But that's the result, right? That's, the, that's not the end goal.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a byproduct, an, an inevitable byproduct, I guess I would right. say.
1: Well, this reminds me of um, a one time a, a in a, a class on metaphor and the Bible which, man, that got turned sideways real quick. The professor was, you know, taking it really deep and really far. It was fascinating. And it was a lot of this kind of of language um, and how meanings change and how much of the Bible is metaphor, or at least participates in these meta-narratives of metaphor. And it was interesting to see some students tie themselves in knots when the suggestion that God as a mother was metaphorical, but God as a father was literal. And, and how many mental gymnastics they had to go through to make the case that one is literal and one is metaphorical, but how deeply rooted, like you were saying, Pete, these traditions are where they they just could not wrap their mind around something, either either them both being literal, which I don't know what that would actually mean, or both of them being metaphorical. Somehow, there had to be this distinction that prioritized God as Father in a, in a male way. So, it just reminded me of how deeply entrenched these traditions can be and how hard it is, how hard we work to keep what we've inherited.
2: Yeah, and I think, I think if, you want, if you want to understand how the Bible, if you, can, if you can even talk about it in a monolithic way, how oftentimes the writers of these various books of the Bible are thinking about language or interacting with sacred speech, you can look at two things. One, Look at the amount of metaphorical language that you find in the Bible. And it's amazing. I mean, even, even when you look at the New Testament, they're like, hey, Jesus, is it A or B? And, he's, and then he tells them a story about like a farmer in a field. And it's just like, this is, this is even though we, as uh, oftentimes particularly evangelicals, but kind of post-enlightenment Western Christians, we crave direct language. Metaphor is indirect language. It's not, getting, it's not telling you something, it's getting at something, and over time there are various meanings that we can kind of pull from this metaphor. You know, I mean, uh, Pete, you can attest to this, you know, 60 years ago people would say, oh yeah, a parable, it has one meaning. And now nobody believes that. They'd say, ah, it's three meanings, whatever. There's many, many, there are layers of meaning in a parable. So the, the, the kinds of language that in particular Jesus is opting for, but actually a lot of the biblical writers are opting for is metaphorical language. They're not saying what something is. They're saying that something is like something else. And they're choosing that, choosing indirect language over direct language, which is to say they're choosing to have a linguistic imagination, which is something that we don't have. I think the other thing is, is looking at the predominance, particularly in the gospels of questions over answers. You know, I was reading the other day, like how Jesus was asked like 300, some questions. I don't remember how many questions it was a massive amount of questions in the new Testament and answered like 18 of them, and then goes on to ask over a hundred questions himself. And we, we have a real addiction to answers, American Christians in particular. Just give me the answer. Just tell me what this means. And this notion that, yes, God is in the answer, and the answer can be holy, but God is also in the question, and the question is just as holy, and that liminal space between the question and the answer is also holy. You know, as the rabbi said, like, God is in the wrestling. That's a real mind shift for a lot of people. So when people say things like, well, you're just saying everything's up for grabs, the the notion of that critique or the presumption is, is that God's in the answer. So what if I have to let go of my addiction to the answer? What if what you're asking me to do is to enter into the holiness of questioning? Well, that's not faith because faith has to be getting, eventually there's the end point, eventually there's the destination, eventually there is the definition. And what if, as a question to raise, what if... A life of faith doesn't mean getting to the answers at all. What if it means wrestling with these questions all of your life? For a lot of people, I think that that possibility is just too unbearable for
0: them. Yeah, because the whole point of this is to give you, to not have to do that, right? I mean, that's, that, that is the model, I guess, of faith that I think sometimes people, that's, that's all they have. You know, that's all they know until a problem arises, and then they have to think through things a little bit differently, I guess. But yeah, I mean, this is, this is what I was getting at before, Jonathan, that once we start talking about language and the need to reimagine, not the need, but the inevitability of reimagining sacred space, which you gave an example of sin that happens within the Bible itself. But once you do that, you are really raising other sorts of questions about the nature of faith which is what we're just talking about, or the nature of the Bible or the nature of God. And that's not the most comfortable place to be in the world for, you know, I mean, I, I sort of wish we had a code that we could crack and we'd have it all, but we don't. It's, it's sometimes uncomfortable to live in that space where it's, it's gray a lot. So, again, thanks.
1: Well, maybe I can take the conversation a little different direction in saying, you know, just knowing a little bit about some of your writings, Jonathan, and, and some of the things that you've been talking about recently, there's also this turn toward... Some people who ha- who are kind of understanding now that they they want a new language or that the old language doesn't fit anymore, and so there's a sense in which maybe the language is just we're just not using it. Like there's we we talked a lot about here, kind of conservative Christian or evangelical ideology or or belief, but there's a lot of people who are kind of thrown in the towel, I think, and just saying, well, I I just don't know what to do with it. If it's not A, I don't know what B is. And uh, maybe, can you just speak a little bit to how you see that being a little also problematic, just as much maybe as the kind of poles of this conservative ideology, but also the sense in which we are just finding more and more that people aren't using spiritual language at all because we don't really know what to do with it.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, the, the predominant religious force in the United States and in the West generally really is evangelicalism, numerically, financially in terms of the level of mobilization and political influence, they're the ones who are speaking God most frequently, most fluently, and most loudly. So, look for a moment at the fruit of that, that approach, that fossilization approach, that approach that says, don't touch my words. The way, that we, the way that we've understood these things are the way they should always be understood. I'm right, you're wrong. In the United States, almost 71% of people claim to be Christian. Only 7% of Americans say that they speak God. They have a a religious or spiritual conversation on a regular basis. If you look at uh, church-going Christians, that number is about 13%. In other words, if you go to church on a Sunday and only the most faithful Christians show up that day, and you look down your row. 7 out of 8 of those will not utter a single word about God, faith, or spirituality until they show up again the next week. So, this dominant way of interacting with sacred speech that is brittle, that is rigid, that tends to crucify those who step outside the bounds, it is quite literally killing sacred speech. And if current trends persist, which is to say, If the predominant uh, evangelical, white evangelical way of interacting with sacred speech continues to be the chief animating force in the United States, then sacred speech and spiritual conversations will be endangered species, if not almost completely non-existent by the end of my lifetime. You're full of good news today, Jonathan. Well, it's, you know, I'm always the bearer of bad news, but it is it is the data. Uh, if you look, for example, at Google Ingram data, you know, these days, everything's like the six degrees of Google. Over the 20th century, as evangelicalism became a dominant force in American political life, American public life, and American religious life, as that began to dominate, almost every moral, ethical, religious, and spiritual term decreased dramatically in usage. There was a, a study done in a peer reviewed journal called the Journal of Positive Psychology that looked at the Google Ngram data, the data that basically pulls all of the books and speeches and web pages that were produced in the 20th century up until 2008, going back to 1500. It analyzed 70 some odd terms, religious and moral terms, and found that the majority of them had decreased by 50% or more. The word grace has decreased, the word wisdom has decreased. Of course, yes, all of the, the meaty theological terms, sanctification, atonement, yes, those have all decreased. But even basic religious moral and virtue terms, terms that maybe Christians would call the fruit of the spirit, have all been in a ski slope decline, a precipitous decline. So if you want to know what this approach to language has brought us, just log on to Google and Google, Google Ingram data, and you'll see it's not a pretty picture, and so, again, you know, maybe it is a, a courageous act, but I hate to be the bearer of bad news. This is what we're seeing. And if we don't learn to use language in the way language works, uh, I think we're going to see these things continue to worsen so that the vocabulary of faith will end up functioning basically like Latin does. It will happen kind of in liturgy and in sacred spaces, but outside of that, people will not have spiritual or religious conversations at all. So, in
0: order for... I mean to state the what I think is an obvious point at, at this point of our discussion, but worth stating: the faith doesn't survive without this. Let's call it a transformation, maybe, of the use of language,
2: and, uh, which is what exactly what I call it: a, a transformational approach to language.
0: Okay, that's the. Okay, I'm glad I said that. Then a transformational approach, and you gave one example of 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 a word in the Bible, sin, I think a large example, I, just to fill something in that might help people listening, is Judaism would not have survived had the Hebrew scriptures not been translated into Greek, because people didn't speak that old language anymore, not the common people. And so, you have the Bible translated into Greek, which allowed it to continue and to grow in a Greek-dominated culture. I mean, what do I know, it would not have survived, but it would have been really tough. This is something that happened and, and so, language was used, new language was used in the Greek translation of the Bible that almost was at odds in places with the Hebrew because people weren't thinking of God the same way. They had to actually reimagine God and reimagine language at the same time. You know, when in the flood story when it says, you know, God was grieved and was sorry that he had made humanity. The writers of the Septuagint changed that to things like, he pondered and he thought, sort of like a philosopher. Because in a Greek world, you want to speak about God in ways that make sense in that culture, otherwise the faith just dies. People don't listen to it anymore. Which is the very criticism that a lot of Christians get, we you can't just cave into culture. Are you kidding me? If you don't do that, you don't survive.
2: You have to adapt on some level. Right. Another great example, if you look at Deuteronomy, you know, you shall love the Lord your God, which is not the kind of I am a friend of God where you get teary-eyed and you think about Jesus as like, you know, your husband. It is, it's not a, an emotional kind of love. It's, it's the way that like a master will say, you'll love me, right? It's duty, which was then reimagined later on and obviously is being, is, is now we have, a, we have a very different way of talking about the way that God says, you shall love me, where it's like falling in love. If you think that, that there's this kind of rom-com way of talking about the love for God in the Hebrew scriptures, you are already engaging in linguistic reimagining. So,
1: maybe as we uh, wrap up the, some of this conversation, I want to bring it back to just some practical, if, if a lot of our listeners aren't word nerds like you are, what would be some practical things? Like, okay, we've heard the, the doom and gloom, we see it's not a pretty picture around sacred speech. What can individuals do for, and yeah, what, what would be some maybe action steps for them? You know, here's, here's,
2: the, here's the silver lining. I spent a year when I was writing my book, uh, just studying linguistics, and I kept running across this term that I'd never seen before, comeback languages. Like, what is a comeback language? You know, every year there are so many thousands of languages spoken uh, on planet Earth, and and a bunch of them every year vanish. They just disappear for a lot of reasons. Genocide, economic pressures, the death of a people group, or the kids just say, I'm not going to talk this this way anymore. I'm going to use this other language because it's the language of commerce and language of entertainment, whatever reason. There are languages every year that just vanish. But every so often there is what linguists will call a comeback language, a language that has gone to the brink, but comes back. Probably the best example of this in, in modern times is Hebrew, right? Uh, the rise of the modern Israeli nation-state, it came back. But there are also other examples, Catalan, uh, Gaelic, a Hawaiian. If you take a vacation to Hawaii, they will, they will mahalo you to death. They've decided to bring it back. I read an article the other day about a, a Native American language in Louisiana that's now been excavated, and they're teaching it to young children. They're bringing it back. So this language can come back. How does it come back? It comes back from us Allowing ourselves to let go of that perspective that says we have to control, we have to fossilize these terms, we have to dip them in liquid amber, and it requires us embracing a transformational approach to language that allows us to sit around and reimagine what these words can mean within community. You know, uh, if you're listening to this and you went to seminary, you may have taken Greek. You can't speak in Greece because uh, it's not the same language. Hebrew, you can't go to Israel and speak Hebrew just because you took it at whatever seminary you went to. Every comeback language actually has come back in a different form than it left us, because the the, the, the way that you bring it back is to t- to approach it with an open hand, allowing it to transform, to meet the challenges and the needs and the questions of your current moment. If you are not willing to do that, I have nothing to offer you. But if you are willing to do that, to get into community and say, how have we understood these words and how have these words been narrowed or been misused or abused in ways that have oppressed entire people groups? How have we misshapen these words so that maybe they misrepresent God as being less than loving or less than good? Uh, allowing us to kind of critique these words and then to, to ask that dangerous question, how might we reimagine this word in our way in our day so that we can allow this language to live again so that we can allow this Jesus to live again in our midst? That takes a lot of courage. It takes vulnerability. It takes passion. It takes time. It is not the easy way but if people are willing to do that, then I absolutely believe that the vocabulary of faith can become a comeback language. It can be revived in the 21st century.
1: Well, amen and amen. I don't think we can top that.
0: No, that's the crescendo.
1: So, can you maybe send us off, Jonathan, with where can people keep this conversation going and where can they keep learning about this if they would care to do so? What, do you, what have you been working on? What have you finished? Where can people find you? let us know.
2: Yeah, you know, I'd be tempted to say buy my book, but I'll avoid that and say, if people want kind of just a, you know, a 30,000-foot view, I wrote a piece a couple weeks ago that was on the cover of the New York Times Sunday Review that was titled, It's Getting Harder to Talk About God. I wrote a corresponding piece that fleshed this out in the week as well. And I think if you want a place to go, it will not cost you $15.99. It's absolutely free. Check out that article at the New York Times. And, and, and just allow it to be kind of grist for the mill to just kind of get you thinking about how do you interact with language? How do you think about sacred speech? And how might you think about sacred speech in a different way if you wanted to revive the vocabulary of faith in your day? In addition to that, obviously, people can always go to my website, and or follow me on social media.
0: Great. Well, listen, Jonathan, this has been really enlightening. We're so glad to have had you here on our podcast.
2: Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Pete.
0: Thank you. We'll see you later. See ya. Okay, everybody, thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast with our guest, Jonathan Merritt. Make sure to check out his book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. It's a really, really good piece of work. I just finished it, and I'm glad that I did. It's just super, super insightful. And check him out also on his website, like he mentioned, and he mentioned a couple of articles too, if you'd rather not dive into the book right away, just to get up to speed and to be informed about just the nature of language, which is such an important topic.
1: And while you're out surfing the interwebs, uh, we've been up to some new projects at The Bible for Normal People, and one of those is uh, launching some courses. And we did these live in the spring and in the fall, and now we're launching the the self-study version, where you can get these sessions online and have access to all the slides that we used in that, and also have Pete, uh, who teaches several sessions, uh, several hours worth of sessions, and they also get uh, some Q&A that were recorded at the end of those courses. There's one called What Is God Like?, where we do a lot of of what we talked about in today's episode, reimagining God and showing how the Bible itself does that And there's uh, another one called Jesus and the Old Testament, which actually has a similar theme of reimagining and seeing how the New Testament and Old Testament interact around some of these similar issues. So, go to pdens.com front slash course and you can check those out. Cool. We'll see you later. See ya.